This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Howard Kern. Howard was born and raised on the East Coast. In spite of a professed childhood aversion for writing, Howard chose to study law. He practiced as a corporate attorney for a number of decades, migrating to California early in his career. Through a series of experiences, which included witnessing a dear friend pass away, he turned to writing to find solace. His discovery of his joys of writing led to an avocation that he engages in regularly and one that he has come to rely on to be healing for him. He is also a two-time cancer survivor. Howard is co-founder of an initiative entitled Shift Poetry, where he and a partner pluck written compositions from those who find the practice of writing supportive to their own well-being. Howard, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Sam. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for some time. You and I have gotten to know each other quite well in the last several months. And um, uh, your partner, Barbara, is, uh, has been on the show and uh, she spoke very passionately about shift poetry. And um, I understand you're, you're as, as I know, you're half of that endeavor. And so um, we're definitely going to get into that uh, in this conversation. But I'd love to start from the very beginning. And if memory serves, you grew up in New Jersey. Do I have that right? Yep. I grew up in, in a place called Livingston, New Jersey. Sure. Um, back in 2016 was really significant because the the two candidates, um, Clinton and Trump, their their in-laws were both from Livingston, New Jersey. So oh, the uh, Kushner Kushner's dad, who was a felon, was from Livingston, as was um, Clinton's son-in-law, was from Livingston, and his dad was also a felon. <laughs> so, is there a trend you're suggesting or hinting at Howard yeah no I, I guess that was the problem with my with my future my my dad was honest <laughs> gotcha well I'm familiar with Livingston I think we've had this conversation where I share there was a part of my youth that was spent in Piscataway New Jersey yeah which which also was uh Part of my youth as well. I went to Rutgers, right? And I lived down Bush Campus, which was Piscataway. Right. Yeah. In fact, um, many of uh, my dear friends, whom I'm still in touch with today, um, uh, were actually uh, the children of Rutgers professors or postdoctoral fellows, and it created a very international experience for me. Um, Rutgers had just done such a great job of bringing people from all corners of the globe. So uh, that certainly positively impacted me. Um, Howard, clearly writing has been such an important theme of, of your life. And, and even the study of law is a focus on language and its complexities and, and structuring it uh, and so forth. Um, were you, did you have a writing proclivity while you were growing up? I guess I had a writing anti-proclivity <laughs> when I was growing up. My whole life, I was afraid of, of two things. I was afraid of sales and I was afraid of writing. Wow. So 
when I was young, I realized that I could not be a police officer because they had to write reports, and I could not imagine writing reports. <laughs> and, and then I just felt that um, I, I really, I don't like rejection, so I figured sales was, was not something for me. And somehow I ended up becoming a lawyer, which is all about sales, and writing. That's right. <laughs> well, you know what they say, we need to embrace and run precisely towards those areas that frighten us the most. So you're an embodiment of that. What, what I find that's really interesting in my life is that, um, you know, the Rolling Stones song always resonates with me. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you just might find you'll get, you'll get what you need. Right. And I find that part of my like um, spirituality is this concept that the universe is constantly talking to me. And when I'm more aware, I actually listen. And when I'm not aware, I just, you know, just passes me by and, right. and I'm oblivious. Right, right. Well, it, um, there's a strong argument to be as uh, aware as possible. Um, when did you make the decision to practice law or to study law? Was that at, while at Rutgers or did you graduate first and then go to Cardozo? So, um, as a kid, I loved all the, I loved Perry Mason. I loved a lot of the, the legal shows, but I'm not the, the loudest speaking person in the world. And, and I grew up, I had a speech impediment. So I was always nervous about speaking. Okay. So that was another thing that I, I, that I tried to avoid all my life was actually public speaking or speaking in general. But I always had a lot to say, so I could never really keep my, my mouth shut. And I think the, um, the time that I really thought that I would love to be a lawyer, I was watching Little House on the Prairie. Oh. And the, um, the son-in-law had been blind and then somehow he, he recovered his eyesight. That's right, Mary's and husband. Sat, yeah, and he sat for the Minnesota bar. Right. And I thought that law was such a, you know, um, great profession, honorable. And I thought, wow, that would be so cool to be a lawyer one day. And, and then um, when I went to college, I had, again, my, my whole goal in, in college was to avoid anything that involved writing. So I, I, I planned my, plan my curricula around multiple choice um, tests. And I, and I thought that I would do a great job, but I also was very curious. So history was something that, that I was um, very attracted to. So what I did there was I, um, instead of taking a history course that I was concerned would, would demolish my, my GPA, I would take these, you know, mini courses, like half, half semester that were past fail. And I took eight of those and I loved them. And I remember the first history course that I took, I wrote a paper and I got like a D, D plus on it. And, and then I convinced the, the instructor that that was just a fluke. And I'm really much better than that. So she said, okay, if you write, if you rewrite it, or if you do better on the next one, I'll drop this, this grade. And so um, I rewrote it, did, did well, you know, did well in the class. It was past fail, so it didn't really matter. But I remember that at one point I raised an argument and she said, obviously, you must be pre-law. 
<laughs> and I still wasn't committed, you know, I wasn't a poli sci, I was a business major, because again, multiple choice questions. Right. <laughs> and, and so when I took the LSATs and the GMATs, I did much better on the LSATs. So okay. I figured I'd go to law school and then become an investment banker. Okay. And again, that, that really didn't work out either, but, <laughs> but I'm really happy where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really extraordinary. The, the lengths you went to, to, to avoid it. Um, did you read a lot as a kid? I, I loved, I loved to read. Okay. And I always, I always read books. I loved, um, I loved, like I'd get interested in different um, subjects. So we had, we had an aquarium. So I, I read all these books on fish. My, my dad was, um, was was a hunter and he liked guns and stuff. So I used to know everything about rifles and and all that stuff. Um, I would read mist. I loved mystery novels. I loved um, historical stories. I loved like Leon Urus. I loved his you know the historical um, fictionalizations. Yep. And I just um, I couldn't you know I really always had had a book and was always reading something. That's great. Uh, do you have siblings, Howard? I do. I have an older brother, younger brother, and a younger sister. Okay. And it was almost like um, two different families because there's about four years between me and my older brother. Okay. There's seven years between me and my younger brother oh. and four years between my younger brother and younger sister. Right. So, but we, we had the same parents, but we were, our, our parents got divorced and, and my younger siblings were basically raised by my dad and stepmom. Okay. So it's like we're we're two different families yeah. that are 100% blood related. Yeah, yeah, no, understood. Um, that's uh, so fascinating. Um, tell us about your friend, Carrie. Was this a, a friend that you met when you were young or is it a, I know he plays well, a very I, I met him. I, I, I met him when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess now when I look back on on how old I was when I met him, I guess I was young at the time. <laughs> I didn't feel young, but we met when he was a few years. He was the same age as my older brother, so okay. I was um, I was around 40, 41 when I met him. He was he was 40, 43, 44. Gotcha. And he and I were. Um, I lived in Pacific Palisades which is a beautiful neighborhood. There's a poem that a woman who, who lived here wrote. It said, if you're rich, you live in, in Beverly Hills. If you're famous, you live in Malibu. And if you're lucky, you live in Pacific Palisades. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that's sort of the way I felt. Yeah. So we had, we had this, we would meet regularly at, at a you know, ad hoc dog park by the bluffs overlooking the ocean. Sure. And and so, initially it was just um, just trivial conversations. You know, the dogs look good. How how are things going? We ultimately the conversations got deeper. They shut down the dog park, so we had to walk instead of just sitting standing around talking. And we we found that we had this um, incredible connection to one another. And we were totally different. Um, um, my background, reform, Jewish, you know, middle-class kid from New Jersey. He was a, he was a, um, 
basically, he was a Christian fundamentalist. Okay. Well, but it never seemed to interfere with our ability to, to talk to each other. Really, we, we, we just, you know, it was definitely a bromance. Yeah. And it was the most special, you know, one of the most special relationships that I've had in my life. And unfortunately, during the course of the relationship, he, he got sick and um, ultimately developed ALS and, and passed away. Um, I guess it'll be seven years in January. Wow, okay. I'm sorry for your loss. Extremely, extremely close. And it was, um, it was a big loss. And, and as you and I have discussed, I've written a book about that that relationship. It's called Walking with Carrie. Hopefully, it will be released soon. But it was very important that I um, document the story because one of my favorite stories growing up was, um, you know, Brian's song. And I remember once walking with Carrie, and he said, "We we talk about everything." So one of the things that he asked me was, "What was your favorite movie?" And I said, Brian's song. And he said, that, that's a chick's movie. And, and I said, well, what's your favorite movie? And he said, um, it's a wonderful life. And I said, that's not a chick's movie. <laughs> and, and in the book, I talk about how we both really got to live our favorite movies, you know, because Brian's song was, was about two, two guys that, you know, loved, loved each other's friends and, and ultimately won. Um, watched the other one pass away yeah, and, and was there for him throughout the process. And the other song, the other movie, What's It's a Wonderful Life, is about somebody who gets to see, you know, before he gets to see what life not only was like without him, but also how much he was loved during that life. Yeah. And Carrie, because ALS is, you know, it's, it's a progressive disease, That's but right. it's not it's not immediate. He got to have people around him every day for, for like two or three years. And he really got to see like how, how loved he was. Amazing. So um, even though his, his life was tragic and shorter than it should have been, he, he got, he was able to see how much people really loved him. Yeah. No, that's superb um, that he had that. Um, it's so interesting, um, the choice of favorite film and uh, kind of living out one's life. Of course, you had made that distinction or determination much before um, and how this almost prophetically proved out. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, we've jumped ahead several decades and that was unintentional. I just somehow had the sense that Carrie was a childhood friend. That's why I brought him up in the context of talking about back then. But well, we, we, I, I also have um, childhood friends that have passed away as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'd be writing books about them. I, I, have the one, I have one close friend, his name is Mike. And, and Mike and I have been friends since... Um, we were teenagers, or you know, thirteen, and and Mike, I shared the the galley of walking with Carrie with Mike, and he was, you know, he was put off of it because he didn't know that I had other friends, <laughs> and, and and Mike lives back east, and I I'm on the west coast. Right. And so Mike, Mike and I will talk, and Mike said, you know, I want you to write a book about our friendship. And instead of walking with Mike, why don't you why don't you call it talking with Mike? 
<laughs> Not bad. We could have a whole series here. This is uh, could be onto something. Um, well, uh, clearly, um, you've gotten over your fear of writing, as we we see, and and I, I guess I've bookended the conversation, and that's an intentional pun. But uh, uh, to, to come back to uh, that transition, because I think that's what's really uh, interesting and fascinating. Um, so um, you go to Cardoza for law school. Yeah. And, and so so let, let me um, interject and just talk about um, like my, my call. I believe that my writing is the calling. Yeah. It's not something that, you know, I, I tried to run away from it, but it just kept on coming back to me. Yeah. And. And what I found when I was younger was that I would have stories come fall into my head and I had no choice but to write them down. Oh, and, and how old were you when you had that sensation? Um, you know, probably after, probably before college. Okay. Or maybe during college. But I remember I wrote one, one great story. It was, um, it was, I, I was a foot, so it was after college because it was after the Giants had won the, um, the, the championship. Okay. And it was about how um, Bill, it was about how Bill Purcells was, um, was really a Russian spy. And I was talking about how things were upside down, like, you know, it, could you imagine if Cleveland actually won the world championship? And, and it was a very interesting story. And I just, it just, the whole story came to me. And then throughout my, my life, I'd have different experiences where like poems would come to me and I'd just write them down. But it, again, I wasn't led to writing. Yeah. So I didn't practice the practice writing it was just you know it was I'd, I'd get out of my system then i'd go hiking or i'd go biking or i do i was much more physical than than mental yeah and and then at some point um you know it, it just i realized that writing was good and it wasn't something that i had to avoid but it was actually something that i wanted to embrace that's and that's how i'm here now yeah, yeah. Well, and you won an award for a short story. Yeah, I um, that that also was an interesting story. That that was one of the stories that that came to me. It wasn't um. It turned out to be somewhat prophetic, but but I wrote a story about a guy who was married with two children. And um, and the guy discovers that he has, he's told that he's in, inoperable brain cancer. Mm. And, and I wrote the story and the title of the story was who's going to, um, who's going to plumb the toilets? Because as in my, in my family, when I, you know, when everyone was all together and now we're all like separated, um, I was the person who was the go-to for, for most of the chores. And my concern in the story was that, you know, if I'm gone, who's, who's going to take over that? Yeah. So I asked, um, you know, so the character asked his son, you know, if, if you know, if I'm gone, who, who's going to, who's going to plumb the toilet? 
And I said, you know, I will, I've always known how to do it, but I didn't do it because I knew you would. And I asked the, the, the daughter character, um, who's gonna plumb the toilet? And she said, well, you know, you will because you're immortal and you're never gonna die. Wow. And, and then I asked the, um, the wife character, who's gonna plumb the toilets? And she says that she'll hire, you know, she'll hire the best looking plumber there is and nobody will object to his plumber's 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 butt and and at the end i say you know i'm not i don't really care who what you think or what you say but i've never been here and i don't know what to do so am i going to announce it on facebook that hey i'm dying or am i going to be qu quietly go and just live my life to the last moment in in secret and shortly after I wrote that, and then I shared the story with different people. Um, my father and, and, and sister both thought that it was a, it was a true story because wow. I, used, I used the names of the characters all had the names of my family members. Right. Um, another person said, you know, you should burn it because you just want, you don't want that in the universe. So right after I wrote that, I go to the public library and they have an announcement for a competition, for short story competition. Mm. So instead of burning the story, I published, you know, I, I submitted for submitted. publication. That's great. And, and right after I submitted that, I found out that I had prostate cancer. Oh my goodness. Wow. And, Howard, and that so, just gave me chills. Yeah. So the story's out there. And then, um, that's like in January of 2013. Right. And in March of 2013, um, you know, I, I actually, I'm diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the same day, or the same, I guess it was the same day or the next day that I get the diagnosis, I, I have to, I'm a finalist in this competition or the short story competition. Yeah. And I remember going into going into the meeting, you know, into the library where they read all the stories, and sitting in the back, and it's nighttime, and I'm wearing dark glasses because I I was very emotional, you know, at the discovery that I had prostate cancer and, and not knowing what to do. And and hearing the actor bring life to my words, and then going up there, you know, after after he read it, and and the actor asking me is um, this story autobiographical? And I said, well, sort of, you know, um, it's prostate cancer, not brain cancer. And, and I don't, nobody's given me an expiration date. <laughs> and, and other judges were saying, you know, it's, uh, one, one beautiful older woman said, you know, this, this, this story sings to me, so sing song, sing song, sing song. And she starts, you know, but it was just, I, I came and, I came in third. I actually thought that my my story was the best story, but it came in third in, in the competition. But it was just that was an example of um, a story that that fell into my into my heart or into my my zeitgeist and ended up you know having its own life. Amazing. That's really. Uh... After that, I decided that I have to be careful about what I write. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, um, was this the moment where you began using writing as a tool that um, was uh, therapeutic for you? It, it actually started um, it, it, it was pretty it actually started earlier a few years earlier when when Carrie was diagnosed with with ALS and I started writing walking with Carrie while he was still alive because I wanted to share that with him before he passed I yeah. thought that that would be like a great gift to yeah. him Absolutely. which I did I obviously I couldn't share the ending with him because the ending you know was after he um, but but I found that just writing was able was enabling me to to deal with the hardships in my life but also to remember um the things to be grateful for mm, one, one of the poems cool. that that i've written is called on gratitude and it you know it's i say gratitude it's not just a platitude it's an attitude and i go through all the twos nice. but it's um but it but what i found with writing is that you know we we can we can change the direction of of our life we can change the direction of our mood and so that was my first adventure and then i started writing this um like a facebook journal because i was using facebook as as a um like my my you know 24 hour therapist sure yeah. writing on facebook and i'd write these incredibly deep posts that totally embarrassed my kids my my daughter <laughs> they um um, Dad, you're supposed to tell me not to put this on Facebook. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, That's um, funny. So I tried. I was going to do a um, journal called this uh, a spiritual merry-go-merry-go-round because that's what I found that that a lot of life we we tend to go around in circles to avoid where we're at, and then we always end up at the same point. Yeah. You know, and and so um and so I shared that and I wrote this one poem. It was in the voice of a homeless person. Mm. And and part of what, what I when I write is I'll write about things that I'm afraid of. And oh, so one thing great. that I'm always afraid of is losing everything, you know, being homeless, being on the street. And so I wrote this story and the voice of a homeless person who, you know, is, invin is invinci invisible and people are constantly walking past him. But because he's there all the time, he knows everybody. He knows people's names. He knows their stories. He knows their kids. He knows, like, you know, when, when they're sick, when they're having marital wow. problems, everything. And he says in the story that I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I know you don't see me now. But I once was just like you. I I had, you know, I had a wife, I had kids, I had a dog, I had a house, I even had a Mercedes. But but now, you know, now here I am. So I'm sorry if I'm, you know, intruding on your life. But I don't need your money or your pity. But every now and then it would be nice to say hello. Amazing. To be seen and heard. That's yeah. a fundamental human desire, right? That's and and that's what that's what shift poetry is all about. Yeah. It's giving voices to people that are afraid to to 
voice their feelings. Yeah. Well, and now, Howard, having gone through that exercise of writing this book from this homeless person's perspective, do you now fear that less? Yeah. Well, what, what I find is that when I face my fears, I either embrace what I'm afraid of, or I realize that it's not something that was ever real. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I'm not really concerned about being homeless at this stage in my life, but, but I also know that I have to be grateful for what I have because I love that expression by the grace of God goes thee, because I do feel that, you know, I it's sort of like I won the um, genetic lottery being born in the body that I have at the time that, that I was born. But I also know that things that are wrong need to be fixed, even if they don't apply to me. I want, I want the world to be a better place. One of the things in Hebrew, there's the concept called tikkun olam. Mm. And tikkun olam means to fix the world. Wow. And wow. each one of us is charged with the ability or with the responsibility of making the world a better place so that when we're gone, instead of you know um, leaving ashes in our late wake, let's leave flowers. Nice. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, we're going to come back to the cancer theme uh, in just a moment, but I did want to ask... Um, I can't get enough cancer. <laughs> Remember, you got to be careful what you say and what you write. Uh, Howard, what uh, brought you from the East Coast to the West Coast, and what year did that happen? I came out to the West Coast in 1988. Okay. My, my family had started migrating out here. My dad moved out here in 77. I had younger siblings that moved out here in 81. My older sibling moved out in 83. Okay. And what brought me out was I had finished law school. I had had a couple of gigs at different law firms in New York. I basically was burned out and I needed needed change. So I moved in with, with dad and stepmom and, and my two younger siblings. Fortunately, it wasn't for a long period of time, but that, that was what made the move. I'm, I don't know your perception or experience with California being from the East Coast yourself, but I had always thought that California was the land of, um, you know, fruits and honey or nothing or whatever, whatever it is, raisins or something. But when I came out here, I finally realized that I found my home. Well, that's so great. Um, for me, it um, was the land of creativity. Um, because the entertainment industry having its roots in Southern California and tech having its roots in Northern California, the output of what we bring to the world, I think, is uh, extraordinary. Um, and even if you look at the metrics, you know, we're like the fourth or fifth largest economy globally. Um, and, you know, our population is the same as uh, countries like Spain and Argentina. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a magical place. I've been here 20 years and, um, you know, call it home for sure. Um, and you also have your kids are native Californians. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and Angelinos to boot. Yeah, <laughs> Born at Cedar sinai <laughs> Okay. Nice. Um, I know that you still practice law to some degree today, but uh, when did you transition from it being a full-time endeavor 
to it being more part-time and then pursuing some of these other interests? I think probably when, when I had my first cancer diagnosis in 2013. Gotcha. And, and what that did was it sort of was the wake-up call that this is not a drill, this is, this is real life and, and I'm on a time schedule. And so I think at that point, I started to focus more on what I wanted out of life versus what life, what other people wanted for me. Yeah, well, so well said. We get caught in that trap, there's no question about it. So, um, you know, and it, I'm sad that it had to take something like cancer to awaken you to that, but it uh, oftentimes it's something that's significant. You know, what, what was interesting about cancer for me was I've learned to view that as a gift mm. because before cancer, I would say um, I, I was a drone. I was a corporate lawyer. I didn't really think about my own happiness. I thought about what other people, you know, what I had, what I needed to do um, for other people to be happy or for other people to approve of me. Yeah. Absolutely. And then cancer gave me a voice that said, you know, I'm a person and I need to, um, I need to focus on me if I'm going to survive. And I think for me, cancer was not a dis disease, it was a dis-ease. Yeah. And I felt that, I felt that I was probably uneasy with my life, uneasy with, you know, my choices, uneasy with um, how I, how I presented myself to the world. And so I became much more focused on being, trying, you know, working the best I could to be honest and learning, you know, an important lesson that, that many of us have never learned, which is self-love. Mm, so well said, Howard. That's brilliant. And thank you for that share. Um, it's a, a theme that uh, we're seeing a lot here on the Achieve podcast, and I just love when that comes up. Um, as you're probably aware, I've done, I've written some books in the past, and I haven't really felt the urge to write again, except now after hearing so many of these stories, and and the title has come to me, um, and, and I, the inspiration of basically sharing people's stories, but the title that has come to me is, the worst thing that ever happened to me with the word worst crossed off and best written on top of it. And I love that. I hear so many stories like yours where it's seemingly one of the most traumatic events that could possibly happen to a person ends up becoming a pivotal change point for them. And they're, people are grateful for it. There's gratitude expressed. I've had, um, I've had different experiences in my life where I felt like there have been angels that have been watching out for me. Mm. And, and one experience that also is in the book is when I was on a hike and I got lost on a hike. I had my dog with me and it was only supposed to be a two hour hike. Mm. And it was going to be um, through a loop through Will Rogers and then back to my house. Sure. And I started the hike at maybe, I don't know, seven o'clock. So it was not going, I was going to get home late, but, but not really too bad. But on the hike, I made a wrong turn. Mm. And then instead of going toward Will Rogers, I went toward the mountains. 
Right. And and it got really dark. And I remember I would have my dog walk in front of me because I figured she would not walk off the cliff, whereas I had a more higher probability of doing that. And at different points during the hike, I just panicked and thought that I was going to die because it was it was cold. I wasn't prepared for a long hike. I didn't know where it was. It was it was steep. Um, and I remember at one point I looked down and I see a light mm. and and I'm, I'm dehydrated, somewhat delirious. And I picked up the light, not knowing what the light was. And I put the light on my finger and I led, I let the light lead me through the hike. And then at some point um, the light went out, but I was already calm. So then I continued hiking with, you know, relying on my dog to, to prevent us from falling off the cliff. And, and then again, at some point I, I panicked and I just thought, you know, I'm going to die. We're not going to make it out. How could I do this to my dog? You know, I wasn't concerned about, yeah, right. I was concerned about right. my dog. And I looked down again and, um, and there's the light. So I picked yeah. up the light and I continue on the hike until I got to a point where, um, again, the light went out, but I was already at, at Topanga, okay. and I was able to um, to navigate to, it's one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, wow. and I'm navigate to Topanga, and I'm disoriented, and I don't know, you know, which way is toward, toward the beach, which way is toward the valley, and I see a light on in a house, and a woman answers, answers the door, and she, you know, she was nice enough to call a cab for me. She didn't let me in the house because right. two o'clock in the morning. Sure. I'm a strange man who I can't even talk at this point because I'm so cottonmouth from dehydration. Oh man. And um, she she gave my dog water. Fortunately, not me. <laughs> and, um, so I go down. I had to walk up maybe you know 50, 50 steps to get to her house, and I walk back down to wait for the cab. The cab doesn't come. I go back up to her house, the lights are out, and I decide, you know, I, I can't bother this lady anymore. She did yeah. what she had to do. Then I um then I start walking. I see a car across the street. You know, there's a light on in the car. So I knock on the car and I say, Can I and he said, What? And and he um he understood me, so he hands me the phone and my dog jumps into his car. Oh, and initially he had refused to learn. He said he didn't have any power left on the phone. So then he, I start walking and he had some, some compassion. So he said, here, you, I have 40, 40% left. You could use my phone. So I call, nobody answers because it's two o'clock in the morning. Sure. And, um, and so I give him back the phone, the dog, he said, man, you have the coolest dog ever. <laughs> and, um, and so he's really nice. And then he, he ended up, he said, you know, look, I'll give you a ride home. So, okay. so two o'clock in the morning, this is the kid who's, who's a year older than my son, stoner. He's just sitting in the car, you know, smoking pot. And, and then he, um, he were driving, or actually I had offered to drive. And I said, oh, Lord. and he said, no, no, I got it. And he's totally stoned and I'm totally, you know, wacko myself. He drives. He tells me his story 
it's like I could have been talking to my son, oh, you know, wow. in terms of the, the experience, his experience with his parents getting divorced, you know, um, his dad getting sick and then finding, oh, you know, a woman who helped him to get healthy and recover and his struggles in terms of the parents, um, you know, the dissolution of the parents' marriage. And I'm thinking, you know, this is, this could be my son if I make certain choices. And um, so it drives me home. And I don't think anything about the, the lights, you know, it's just like, hey, you know, I found some lights, it, it happens. So then I'm on a midnight hike with a friend of mine. And, and this is the hike that I used to take with Carrie when Carrie, obviously when Carrie was alive, because after sure. he passed, I didn't take the hike with him. Although I did, I just didn't know it. So mm. we're walking, and there was one tree that was a tree that um, was the last tree that I was standing in front of the last time I saw Carrie. Because Carrie and I were on this hike, and, and he didn't know that he was sick at that point. And, and normally, he was in much better physical condition than I was. But on this particular hike, I was kicking his butt. And I was really excited because I was finally going to get to um, Park Mesa Overlook before Carrie did. <laughs> Carrie said, you know, I, I can't go anymore. I'm too tired. And I remember looking up and feeling so sad and feeling like, you know, something's really wrong. And so I call that tree Carrie's tree. Oh, so the okay. woman that I'm walking with, I, I tell her that, you know, this is Carrie's tree. So, um, so she, she hugs the tree. Oh, and beautiful. She, she, you know, people communicate to different things. She communicated with trees. And she repeated stuff. That, that Carrie, you know, would say to me, you know, and, and she said that Carrie, the tree said that, you know, S, S, you know, was happy that she was um, with me and taking care of me. And, and she, the tree told her to tell me, you know, looking good, Howie. And she never <laughs> called me Howie before. And, and so we continue, we continue on the hike to, it was the, moonlight hike and then we come back to carry we come back and I look down and there's the light oh wow and and then I you know put the light and I realized it's a lightning bug right so I put it down we continue walking then I say I wonder where this is so I go back the light's gone but it was right at Carrie's tree amazing and wow. so I realized that Carrie was with me yeah you know he's been with me when I needed him that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Howard. That's very touching. I can see how the significant uh, this relationship was for you. And um, wow, that's just, that's very beautiful. Um, clearly that's a part of your book. Um, that's such a great, great story. Um, this is such a heartfelt conversation. I'm really, really enjoying it. I think this is going to be very inspiring for our audience as well. Um, would love to talk about the experience you had the second time you were diagnosed with cancer in 2016. And um, you made a, a decision about your treatment plan there that um, wasn't very popular with your family members, but uh, share with us the inspiration to do that. So, so after two, after 2013, in 2013, I had a prostatectomy, which was as Western medicine as you can get, you know, yeah. um, 
Barber refers to Western medicine as um, cut, cut, burn, and poison. Yeah. And so the cut was the prostatectomy, taking my prostate out. And for, for, for a few years after the prostatectomy, everything seemed to be good. I had my PSA tests were, were very, you know, were, were zero or negligible. And then in 2016, things started to change. And my, my PSA rose to like twice the level that it had been at. Mm -hmm. And then in December, it rose even more. And um, so the urologist said that I had to, wanted me to go on a, um, go on Lupron, which is the hormone blocker. Okay. And that's the Western treatment for prostate cancer is they, they believe that testosterone feeds the cancer. And so that's what he had recommended. And, and I went with, with my wife and she, she wanted me to go on Lupron as well. But the, the side effects of Lupron are um, lack, of, lack, lack of libido, lethargy, um, hot flashes, breast growth, all, all kinds of, mm. you know, not, nothing really positive. And I just perceived that if I did that, I'd end up, you know, being, being the person dribbling in the corner at every party. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that to myself. You know, I felt that. And, and I'd also witnessed my mom pass away from cancer. I witnessed Carrie um, suffering and passing from Lou Gehrig's disease. I had another friend, Cliff, who had passed away from um, lymphoma. Wow. And all these people fought really hard to, to beat what they perceived as the enemy. And, and I, um, I read this book by a woman um, named Anita Marjani called There's Always Time to Die. And that book talks about how she was, was her organs had failed. She went to the hospital basically to die. And during the, and she was in a coma. And while she was in a coma, she was able to travel through time and space listening to conversations that were going on, not only around her, but thousands of miles away from her. And she realized that the choice to live or die was her choice. Mm. And once she committed to live, she, it didn't matter what the doctor said, she overcame the cancer. Wow. And, but she also said that it's not about fighting, it's about embracing. You know, we all are, we all go to fear and we go to anger, but love is a much more powerful emotion. And so I decided when, when the cancer came back in 2016, that I wasn't going to go on the Lupron, that I was going to trust myself and I was going to um, heal myself. And I had different experiences that, that supported that. I had, um, two motorcycle accidents, one on December 2nd, um, 2017, I think it was. And the other was on March 17th, 2018. Wow. And, or no, December 2nd, 2000, yeah, seven, yeah, 17. And, um, but in those motorcycle accidents, what was interesting about both motorcycle accidents 
I had written poems about me having a motorcycle accident and before I had the motorcycle accident. Oh, uh, here it is again, another example. <laughs> yeah, and the motorcycle accidents were other people's fault. They weren't my fault. Right. And, um, but then it reminded me that I have, you know, one, I have control. When, when I had the motorcycle accidents, the doctor wasn't there, my family wasn't there, nobody was there to, to guide me, but somehow I protected myself. And two, that when it's your time, it's your time. Hmm. And even though you could be told that, you know, you have six months to live because you have inoperable cancer, you could get hit by a car yeah. and, you know, die the next day. So, so the question is during those six months, for me, the question was, do I want to spend the rest of my life fighting um, a nebulous, enemy that's really part of me because they're they're my cells they're just mutated sure or do i want to live life and do something you know be positive and be be a be a positive force in in the universe and so i chose the latter and my family um felt that it was like that i was committing suicide mm. and was really against my my choice and and I would get, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my own cancer diagnosis and I'm getting calls saying, you're, what are you, what are you crazy? You know, what, what are you doing? Yeah. Why aren't you listening to the doctor? And they didn't, it was very difficult for them to understand, you know, my thinking and my thinking was supported by other people who had, you know, had similar experiences. There were books on, on the subject. And then I started meeting people ultimately meeting Barbara, who really understood what I was doing and the concept of a holistic approach to, to dis-ease yeah. as opposed to disease. And, and I like to point out to people that the stuff that I do for my health is much more significant than what most people do. So I'm a vegetarian. I exercise basically seven days a week. I, um, I, I go to ther you know, talk therapy. I do stuff for service for the community. Mm. And I do everything to, to, be a pos to be positive. And in terms of the cancer, I've had conversations with the cancer where I've said, okay, look, if you kill me, then you die also. <laughs> so let, let's make a deal. Let's just, let's just have detente. We can, all, we can all occupy this space. Right. Right. Wow. Uh, first time I've ever heard it framed that way. Uh, that's absolutely brilliant, Howard. <laughs> uh, well, clearly, uh, I mean, you seem very healthy. Um, and so your approach has worked. Yeah. And you know, the PSA and levels are normalized and in a healthy range. I, I, I stopped because, because my choice not to, not to pursue anything beyond what I'm doing. I stopped at some point getting the PSA test. Got you. Okay. Yeah. What one of the things PSA tests they're um they have the, about an eighty percent inaccurate rate. Wow. So twenty percent okay. they're accurate, eighty percent they're not. Okay. And number two is before the test, it's like I don't know how you were in school, but I would always like get very nervous before exams. And even though the PSA test is just a blood test and not really significant, 
I, I felt stress levels could also impact the PSA. Yeah, yeah. And I also feel that um, have you ever have you ever gone for like a physical, and and just gone into a meditative state when they're taking your blood pressure? Hmm. I I've done that okay. and I brought the blood pressure down. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, brilliant that you do that. Um, that hadn't occurred to me, but I'm going to try that next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we. So, so my my point is that the the question how how do you feel? I feel great, and I feel like I don't need to look at a medical report to make that determination. Sure, yeah, yeah. I know how I feel. Yeah. No, that's uh, superb. Um, you recently had coronavirus, and I know that you suffered uh, intensely for several weeks, but um, you've come out of that. Yeah, I um, and we wrote a book out of that as well, which which you have you have a great great poem in there as well. Yeah, thank you again for being able to be a part of that. That was really special for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I I feel like um. I feel like every time something happens to me, it's a reminder that I'm still alive. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. And, Beautiful. And it's not, you know, it's, I, and I feel blessed. Barbara also had coronavirus. And I think both of us feel blessed that, that we had it before people understood like how scary it, it could be. Yeah. You know, when, when I recovered, I think there were, um, you know, maybe 10,000 deaths total in the U.S. Yeah. at the time, and and maybe two, you know, 250,000 cases. I don't even think there were 10,000 deaths. Wow. And um, but again, turn that around. I've been I give plasma to the Red Cross, and I've given five times already. And wow. and every time I give, I get the confirmation that I still have the antibodies. Okay. Yeah. I I just think that um, you know, we're we're really here to to be you know we're we're here to be a positive force on the universe and to make you know hopefully make things better my um the statement that i love the most i think is when when you go on a hike and it talks about packing in you know packing in and packing out so really you should whatever you come in with you should leave with whether it's trash or or whatever and I always try to bring more trash out than, than what I bring mm. in, because that's the way we, we can make, you know, tikkun alam. Exactly. That's making the world a better place, uh, and, and better than, than leaving it better than, than you found it. That's beautiful. And, and you, you had your own experience, you know, you, you, were, you were part of a, a, a family that had gone through the Holocaust. And you saw how their their life, you know, and their commitment to you know happiness and gratitude, as opposed to a lot of people go through that experience and they're just hateful. Yes, no, absolutely. And um, it, it, their passion was music. You know, yours is writing. Theirs was music, and uh, just so many experiences. Um, and um, you know, it's interesting. We have that. Uh, we share this in common, Howard. You wrote this book, uh, "Walking with Carrie," as an homage to um, a dear friend. I wrote a book as an homage to to these people who I basically had adopted as my parents. I mean, I was raised by my biological parents, but uh, 
every time I think about uh, parental figures, uh, it's really this couple that that comes to mind. And um, the the unconditional love they showed me, the only way I could repay them was to capture their story and present it to all their friends. And the most touching feedback was they would say, our friends would just show up at the house and give us these gigantic hugs and say, you know, I had no idea. Now I completely understand you. And so I, they would say to me, like, esteem, you gave us a gift of being seen, heard, and understood. And that's, that's a priceless gift. Um, so. Uh, well, power... you're, you're, doing, you're doing the same with this, this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. That has really been the, the joy and the essence of this. It's, you know, being in service of others and bringing these stories to light. Um, and uh, and it's just such a treat when um, guests such as you are so open and willing to be vulnerable and um, are so candid uh, in their shares. It, it makes it absolutely wonderful. Um, you talk about writing being healing for you and how this is really the, the, the basis for the name of uh, the company Shift Poetry because it, it shifts your uh, positioning and it, it sort of shifted your health. Uh, to to well-being and, and, and to wellness. Um, and so I'd love for you to say, share from your perspective, um, you know, where would you like to see Shift Poetry go? I believe that Shift Poetry is a tool that millions of people can use to benefit themselves so that instead of, instead of reaching for a pill or calling um, a family member or a friend, they can reach for a pen. And we like to say, write yourself from dark to light. Mm, beautiful. Write, write the future that you want to, write the life that you want to be living as opposed to the life that you believe that you're trapped in. Yesterday, my horoscope was, um, you will gain power by, I'll, I'll actually read it because it was really a good one. I, I mean, it was just like unbelievable, just really powerful. It said, you grow in power as you identify less with work in your body and more with who you really are inside. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> it's not like... <laughs> that <is> spot on. <laughs> uh, so, so what's funny about that is I'm thinking, wow, that was written for me. And then I'm thinking about all the other Sagittarians out there and they're reading that and thinking, what? <laughs> oh, that's great. That's so, um, so appropriate. More about um, shift poetry. We do the workshops mm -hmm. and we're going to be going from the focus, which is um, has been general workshops. We're going to start doing pop-up we're going to start doing special interest work, workshops. So we have a, a man who's heading um, the LBGTQ community. We're looking for, you know, we hope to have um, something related to Black Lives, where we're going to have a member of that community heading that up. We have a, a pop-up coming up, I believe, on October 20th for breast cancer awareness, which oh, I'm very you know, impassioned about given my mom and grandmother both passed away from breast cancer and wow. I've had, you know, prostate cancer. Um, and then we have something coming up on October 1st, 
in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we're going to have something for that. And in November, we're going to have something for Veterans Day. But we're, um, we, want, we want Shift Poetry to be something that everybody can, can benefit from. And we're trying to create communities of like-minded people so that they could have, have a place that they could do, go to to talk about their feelings. And also what, what I find, and, and I'm, you, know, you probably find the same, is that when you hear other people's stories, you think, I think, wow, I'm not so weird after all. <laughs> like it's, everybody else. It's so true. You know, it, um, and, and I've found hearing these stories um, is, is one way to combat the sense of isolation that we're all feeling in this pandemic. Um, you know, I just to be candidly, uh, the visit to your home last weekend was the first home I've been to in seven months, six, seven months, um, and uh, a bit more arduous in uh, being protective because of my son. He's gone through a major medical issue and he's still on immunosuppression medication. Um, but it was such a lovely experience. And obviously, you know, we get along fabulously and, and, and Barbara, it was just such a great sense of community. And it was like, wow, I've missed this so much. But these conversations have been a, a, an important bridge of human connection that, uh, and, and a reminder that uh, we have similar plights, similar worries, similar um, journeys. And so it's, it's always nice to, to connect on this, on this basis. Well, we we really appreciate you. We appreciate this, and you know, today is um, last week was the Jewish New Year, right. so I think this is a great way to start the new year. Well said. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic, Howard. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate you all that you do, and and uh, look forward to interacting further on the shift poetry side. Uh, I'm a big fan. Thanks, and I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you, Essene. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.